Hi, this is Georgina Terry. Welcome to another episode of the Terry Bike Cast. Today I'm talking to Jan Heine. Jan is the editor of Bicycle Quarterly magazine, a really terrific publication that covers mostly bikes of the past, well, many of the present as well. But he's really good at delving into the whole history of bicycling through a lot of different features and tech articles. For the last couple of years, he's been talking about a concept called planing, which is not new, but he's really unearthed it, dusted it off, and started looking at it in more analytical terms. Planing refers to a bicycle that really kind of gets in sync with how we pedal. It's easier to spin for long distances, and you can usually use a larger range of cadences with these bicycles, so they're quite easy to accelerate. If your bicycle planes, you are truly one with it and in sync with it. So here's Jan to explain a little bit more about this concept. Today we're going to discuss planing. Give me a good definition of planing. I'm sure it doesn't mean anything to anyone necessarily. Well, the term comes from boating. And um, really on the boat, what happens when it planes is that at a certain speed, the hull of the boat rises out of the water and suddenly the boat consumes less energy than it did before, even though it's going faster. Originally, actually, it's a woodworking term from planing over the wood. And I guess if you are a woodworker, which I'm not, um, you know, planing wood, I find very, very difficult because usually my plane, which is the, the tool with the razor blade at the bottom there, um, just digs in, but I'm sure if you know what you're doing, you're getting a beautiful chip off the wood, and maybe that's that's what it felt like to the boating people. On a bicycle, planing means that you get in sync with the frame of your bike, um, that suddenly it seems easier to ride faster, not less energy, we, uh, but um, just mentally. Your legs don't hurt. Some bikes feel dead. They're hard to pedal. You always have to focus on keeping your cadence up. Other bikes just seem to be going by themselves. And so we adopted the boating term, planing, for, for that phenomenon. Yeah, I think that that's a really appropriate way to describe it. It, it how, how does... How does someone know when a bike is planing? I mean, it, it, is it something that's built into the bike, or is it something that's built into the rider? Is it a skill that we learn as a rider? Where is this coming from? That's a good question. I never knew or thought about planing because all my bikes were very similar, and they were all traditional racing bikes, and I was sort of schooled by traditional racers to pedal like a traditional racer, and so those bikes worked perfectly for me. So I noticed planing when it didn't happen, when I rode bikes that were made from very stiff, oversized tubing and just were so hard to pedal. Every hill was a chore rather than a joy. Mm -hmm. You know, usually on the hill, I increase the pressure on the pedals and don't even shift if it's a short one and just go over it. And on this test bike, I had to shift, shift, and my legs hurt. And it's just, it wasn't even that I was that much slower. It was just that much less enjoy- enjoyable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it, there are two things that are coming to mind. First of all, I'd like to know a little bit more about the test that you're, you're talking about, what, what you've done. And the other thing is just an observation that I've had about people's reactions to bicycles in general. I think if you just ask somebody uh, uh, about biking and you maybe you present them with, uh, let's say, some sort of a graph, and on the, 
the x-axis we have a frame that's that, that ranges from being a total wet noodle in terms of its stiffness all the way out to an extremely stiff frame. And then on the y-axis we say have efficiency. And, and I think almost always somebody would go to the upper right-hand corner of that graph and say the stiffest frame is the most efficient frame. But you're saying no, that may not be the case. Well, it's funny because for at least 70 years, that's as, as far back as I found references to stiffness in the literature, but probably much further, um, people have thought that the stiffest bikes are the most efficient, but they didn't ride the stiffest bikes they could find because it's very easy to make a stiff bike. You know, if you'd go nowadays, uh, you know, with, with carbon fiber and aluminum, things are a little more muddled, but in the old days, if you went and bought a mid-price, to sort of Japanese-made Bianchi, Fuji, something that was made from seam tubing, not double-butted, relatively thick walls, is very stiff. And I once found that out by accident. I was carrying, way back when in college, a girlfriend on the saddle of my bike. Because, you know, <laughs> the rack wasn't strong enough. And it was not a problem at all on my Peugeot 10-speed. And I tried the same thing years later with my wife, on a high-end, double-butted Reynolds 531 steel frame that, you know, I thought was so stiff and so good and so performing. And it was terrible. I mean, I could hardly control the bike. It was, you know, there, just, uh, there was no stiffness whatsoever that, compared to that old Peugeot 10-speed. Uh -huh. Yes, the Peugeot 10-speed is not the bike that most people would consider a high-performance bike. Right, right. How do... Tell me something about the testing, though, because you've done some very interesting double-blind kind of testing to, well, to try and get... Well, we started out with a hypothesis. Yeah, okay. You know, we had one test bike, and we always make a point at Bicycle Quarterly that we do not ask builders anything about the bike. We ride it. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be biased. We don't ask what kind of tubing did you use, what kind of geometry did you use. Basically, we just ride the thing, and once we're done, two people at least have ridden it. We write down our experiences separately so they don't influence each other. Then we go to the builder and say, hey, this bike seems to be doing this, that, or that. How come? You know, then we measure geometries. And we had this one bike that we didn't particularly, li particularly like. It was a um, racing bike, had narrow tires, which is not really what we usually ride. It uh, required a lot of work to put together because we got sent an unprepped frame set, so I really wasn't too happy about it. <laughs> but it rode really well, and it was... Um, Interesting that my second tester, Mark here, who is about as strong as me, dropped me on the first hill. Hmm. Then we switched bikes, and I dropped him. Then we thought, okay, maybe this bike is a little lighter. So I handed all my water bottles, all my food, everything to Mark, who got back on the, the <laughs> test bike. And he had at least eight pounds of stuff in his jersey pockets and, you know, water <laughs> bottle cages and wherever. And he still dropped me. Then we switched back, and I still dropped him. So we thought, there's something about this bike. And uh, we later found out that it was made from the lightest, most flexible tubing that you can buy, even though the bike itself, due to its components, wasn't right. particularly light. So, of course, we think, okay, it's probably that this flexible tubing is responsible for the way the bike feels, for the way we climb on it and so on. But how do we test this? You know, it could be the red paint. It could be anything. Mm -hmm. you know, any, everybody knows red bikes are faster. <laughs> so we had three frames built by Jeff Line, a friend who's a frame builder, and they were built 
the same day on the same jig from exactly the same tubes, except on one of them we used a standard down and top tube. Yeah. And on the other two, we used super light down and top tubes, similar to the test bike that we had that performed so well. So we painted the same color. We bought three um, production bikes and took the components off, so we built them up with exactly the same components. And in the end, we had three identical bikes mm -hmm. from the outside. And the only difference between them was that under the bottom bracket, one was marked one, the other two, the other three. But even that we weren't allowed to see because in a double-blind test, you can know which bike you're on. So for us, the bikes were identified with stem caps. One was pink, one was green, and one was gold. And the test administrator switched the stem caps from day to day as we tested <laughs> and noted on the secret piece of paper which bike was which stem cap on which day. He also switched the wheels around so that we didn't get anything, say, yeah. one wheel might have had higher spoke tension or, you know, I mean, all those things that you sure. know don't make a difference, but yep. you just want to be safe. And we rode those bikes. And uh, we had three riders ride them, Mark and I and another friend, Alex Wetmore. And Mark and I, being well-matched, immediately could tell on which bike we were. On the super light bike, which weighed the same because the bikes were built so that they weighed the same. The lighter mm -hmm. bikes had a little bit of weight in the bottom bracket mm -hmm. shell. Um, we just went way faster. When we were both on the same bikes, we were evenly matched. Mm. And uh, so we each wrote down our impressions independently. And um, after a bunch of days of testing, we compared our notes. And we compared that to what the frame builder said the frames were. And we had identified the bikes correctly 100% of the time. Wow. Interestingly, the third rider didn't. He thought he identified it correctly, but riding by himself at a lower power output was pretty random. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So, you know, he didn't really. And part of that might have been the, the bikes really weren't that dissimilar. We're talking about... 0.2 millimeters difference in the wall thicknesses of two tubes. Yes, yeah, the so, top and the down. You know, that's, yeah. that's not even, it's, it's not a huge difference. But even that was, we could tell. Did, did you use a power meter at all in these tests? We later did to figure out what's going on because, you know, it's all nice and well to say, okay, we're fast on these bikes. Right. And we found that the power output was, lower on the bike when we run slower. Basically, it's not that one bike is more efficient. It's that we are able to put out more power on the bike that works better for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas on the other bike, our legs start hurting, and it's just really hard to push through that pain. That's interesting. D d d talk a little bit about you, you know, I've read a couple of times in your magazines that you've said that when the frame is really, really too stiff, you you get a real burn in your muscles because it's like you're pushing against a concrete wall and it just isn't going to budge any. Yeah, that's our current hypothesis, and I stress hypothesis here because we really, you know, it's almost impossible to measure what's going on in your muscles while you are riding up a hill. Right. Um, but the hypothesis is that as you're pushing down, you put out most of your power at the, on the downstroke. I mean, the round pedal stroke is an ideal, but realistically, right. <laughs> um, you know, you can only put out, push, pull back, push forward, pull up that much. Most of the power, anybody who has measured that, comes on the downstroke. And so if your bike 
basically resists on that downstroke. It feels like that brick wall. If your bike can flex a little bit while you push down, then you can put more power into the system on the downstroke. And all the modeling shows that that bike flex is returned to the drivetrain as propulsion once you release the pressure at the dead spot at the bottom of the pedal stroke or the top. So basically what you're doing is you're putting more power into the bike frame than you could otherwise without your legs hurting because the bike frame's pushing back. It seems then that there must be kind of an, an optimal point here at which the bicycle is stiff enough to accept as much power as you can put into it. And then at that point, it kind of breaks away and goes into a flexible mode to accept the overage. I'm, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my yeah, head I mean, here. I think, I think there definitely is something like that. Because um, one other thing that we found with a different bike that had a little bit of rear suspension, um, very little rear suspension, I mean, it was like a couple millimeters of travel, we found that with a stiff elastomer back there, Yeah. It felt like an unsuspended bike and just, you know, no great performance. But with a little bit of give back there, we got the same effect as with planing, where you could see the suspension with each pedal stroke activate a little bit, and we felt faster with that bike. It was definitely easier to pedal up the hill. And again, that was a blind test because the elastomers all looked the same from the outside. Right, right, right. And then when it was too soft, it felt out of sync. It felt like we were not really getting what we wanted out of the bike. So clearly, you can have a bike that's too soft, you can have a bike that's too stiff. But one interesting thing of our testing was we're pretty strong riders. I mean, we were putting out 800, 900 watts in some of these tests, (laughs) and we preferred the most flexible steel tubing you can buy today. Wow. But it is possible to get something that's too flexible, is it not? I'm sure, but... I've, at least for us, you can't buy it currently. Okay. Okay. So we are at the we are at the most flexible limit of what you can find. And you know we're six feet tall, so we're not some midgets who have a frame that's overly stiff just because of size or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say midget here. Um, <laughs> no offense taken. <laughs> hmm? No offense taken. <laughs> Compared to you, no. I'm only five feet or five three, so I'm much shorter than you are. So, you know, for somebody like you, if you took a standard modern steel tube or even a a classic one that's like a Columbus SL or or something like that, that's already too stiff for us in a 58, 59 centimeter frame. Mm -hmm. On your, I don't know what you write, 50, 51 centimeter frame? Uh, 48, center to center. 48. Yeah. You know, you'll have a much stiffer bike just from that. Exactly. It's so much shorter. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's all sort of that black magic. And people have often talked about this frame is more lively and that one feels dead and so on and so on. And I think they've always been talking about this. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sure if you're a pro racer, even back in the old days, you want a slightly stiffer bike, and that's probably why most people rode those Columbus SL Reynolds 531 frames for, you know, the better part of, what, half a century? Sure, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the pro bikes were, were almost predictably similar. Well, I did play around with this idea a little bit this summer. One of our 
our more popular bikes is called Valkyrie Tour. And it, it was indeed built for loaded touring. So it's a fairly, I would say, sturdy frame set. Uh, it is steel, and it's one of the true temper steels that are built for Waterford. Um, but after reading a lot about what you had written, I asked Richard Schwinn to build me the same bike geometry-wise, but to really scale down the tubing, taking into account the fact that I only weigh 100 pounds, I'm 5'3", I'm not particularly strong, and I did ask, ask him also to soften up the fork a little bit in terms of giving it a little bit more rake and letting the rake happen a lot closer to the wheel and not gradually over the length of the blade. And to me, the bike felt remarkably different, even though my position on the bike is exactly the same uh, in, in riding over rougher roads or into a, a headwind that can just be a drag after you're doing it mile after mile. I felt that the bike really was working with me instead of against me a little bit. Now, that could all be in my head because I wanted to believe that it was better and it certainly felt better. But, but I really, I think there's definitely something going on there. There's no doubt about that. Well, you know, one thing we found with our double-blind test that it wasn't in our head. You know, that's exactly why we did the double-blind test because we had that one bike I told you about where we all were faster. And people say, oh, that's just in your head and, you know, you're just imagining or whatever. And um, we found that, no, we can replicate that. You know, even if we don't know which bike we're on, we had no way of telling except once we rode it. They felt different and the differences matched what what we thought we would find. It's too bad you can't do that uh, double-blind testing with a larger sample group. I know it's got to be expensive because you've got to go out and buy a lot more bikes, perhaps, or maybe not. Have you considered doing that? We thought about it. The issue is, you know, the the first test was, does this even exist? You know, are we onto something? Um, and not just we as, as as bicycle quarterly, but as cyclists. Because, mm -hmm. you know, cyclists have said, oh, one frame is flexible or one frame feels better and so on. And then there were other people who said it doesn't matter as long as your contact points are the same. The frame just connects those contact right. points and frame stiffness and so on. And so... For that, of course, we needed one or two people. Once we can show that it exists, we know it exists. Now to show for how many people it would exist and how it is for different people would be a huge undertaking. Yeah. You know, uh, my second tester, Mark, is a social psychologist who has a PhD um, doing nothing but testing like that. We need probably 200 writers, at least, wow. to have any sort of significant result you know if we included you in the test then people say well you know there's georgina but she only weighs 100 pounds right what about somebody who weighs 120 yeah yeah you know yeah. what about somebody who pedals at a cadence that's 20 rpm slower what about yeah. this what about that what about somebody who was born in the baby boom what about somebody who <laughs> uh -huh, and uh -huh. that's why nobody has done that it's it's pretty much impossible i mean it'd be fun and we've thought about that that's just to say okay let's take 20 riders all roughly the same size so they can ride the same bike mm -hmm. um but in the end you know what would it really tell us we know okay yeah about maybe somewhere around half the people get a benefit from different stiffnesses the other half not Everybody else would still wonder in which half do they fall. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, and so 
What? One thing that I find remarkable when I was starting to race in Texas way back when in the 80s, that uh, we had an older guy named Jeff Fields who had raced in Belgium before coming back and completing his education, and so he was sort of our coach. And he would ride next to you and he'd say, you know, you need to spin a little more shift another gear or he would say you know your stem is a little low why don't you raise it five millimeters till next time and so if you were willing to listen to him you became sort of a clone of a whole generation or two of racers Mm. in europe Mm -hmm. and you spun at 110 rpm your stem was about five millimeters or so below no 50 millimeters Mm -hmm. two inches below the saddle and um I often wondered whether that style that's so consistent hasn't evolved because it worked best with the bikes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the time. So instead of adapting the bike to the rider, they just adapted the riders to the bikes. <laughs> Interesting. What, if somebody's listening to this and they're intrigued by this idea, where would they start? I mean, you can't really modify a bike that you have now to make it plain if it doesn't already. Because what you have is, is what you have. I'm, I'm making that assumption. So if they're in the market for a new bike, can they detect planing in a test ride? How much of a test ride would it have to be? Or maybe their That's bike planes really, for them really already, but they're not in sync with it, so they don't know that it does. It's a really difficult question, and I don't really have an answer. I know that there was one test bike we had, which was made from oversized but very thin wall tubing. Mm-hmm. It felt different, and it took me about 200 kilometers, 125 miles, until I really got in sync with it. At first I thought, yeah, this bike isn't so bad, but it's really not that great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then after about four or five days of riding, suddenly the bike and I gelled, and it was became a really really nice bike mm-hmm. but you can't do that at a you know bike shop or test ride. you can't say and have this bike for four days and can i ride it for 200 kilometers so i don't really know you know maybe that's a question for you as a builder you know what do you do if somebody comes to you and says hey i'm wondering about planing mm-hmm. and i weigh this much and i'm this tall and so on and so on. What do you do? Well, you know what I think I would do in a case like that is, first of all, I'd look at my own experience, and then I would start looking at the experience of others like like you, uh, and and try and find people who might match that profile and find out what's working for them and what's not working for them. That's one way to back into it. What would be really, really cool, and I'm not sure where you would start on this, but, I mean, to the extent that you can go into a bike shop these days and have a phenomenal fit session done, which, which really works on you biomechanically to make sure you're in the right position, it would be interesting to have some sort of a device in which you could actually change the feel of it to to make it act as though it had this tube set or that tube set and and take measurements on how much it was flexing and what was going on and use that then to decide what the ideal tube set might be for that rider. That That's yeah. a huge project, yep. but it would, I don't know if you could even do it, but it would be really nice. Well, maybe if you could measure the power output and the pedal stroke and so on. In the end, you know, one question that we haven't answered is, does this work for everybody, right. or is this a technique that only some riders use? Right. The riders who report most about this are the people who spin, who, how to say, you know, who aren't very powerful, perhaps. I mean, I'm not a power rider. I'm a terrible sprinter, 
And um, when I climb hills, I usually try to stay seated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe I probably do need a different bike from, say, a guy who weighs 30 pounds more and is all muscle and, you know, rides up hills in the big chain ring. And, um, yeah, you know, there's a, a friend of mine in uh, France, uh, Olivier Truca, who is uh, now the owner of Cycles Alex Singer. And he prefers bikes that are way stiffer than mine. <laughs> We're the same size, so I got to ride his bike once during a ride in France because I didn't have a bike. And it was it was ludicrous. I was spinning in the smallest <laughs> gears because I couldn't power the bike. I was making okay speed, but I was going up these hills like some, I don't know, moped or something, you know, at 120 RPM. And everybody was saying, well, why do you spin like that? And I said, because I can't push bigger gears on this bike. <laughs> it was really funny. And then I looked over to um, Olivier, who was riding his other bike, and he was in the big ring, out of the saddle, 50 RPM. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, the whole bike was creaking. Yeah. And I thought, I can see why you prefer stiff bikes. <laughs> <laughs> he's a prof not professional. He's a semi-professional racer, though, so you know he's definitely stronger than I am too. That you know, and I think too, just how much experience you have on the bike. How many miles have you got on your legs? How many years have you been doing this? Because you certainly learn a lot, and there's there are a lot of tricks to be learned along the way. That I think people who are new to the sport, you know, you just don't you don't know yet. You haven't ridden enough bikes. You haven't had yeah. enough experience to really pick it up. It would be terrible to say that that planing is really the the territory of the uber rider because you know you hate to say that and cut anybody out of it but i think that experience has a lot to do with whether or not you pick up on this and and can... it may well be you know and it's something um you know the french have a word for it the souplesse oh yeah yeah what you call it the, the, um, the how pedaling. you translate that yeah, the pedaling stroke, but sort of the smooth, not yes. even smoothness, the roundness of almost. the pedal stroke, and not even roundness. It's it's more like, yeah, how uh, sort of the 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 smooth round. Yeah, how you get you know some some riders you just see on their bikes how well it works. Oh yeah. And here's yeah. an interesting tidbit. I'm riding a lot with another friend, um, Ryan, who looks at me on the bike a lot when I test the bike because he's riding behind me half the time. And he often tells me, you know, at the end of a ride, before I even have formed an opinion of the bike, what <laughs> he thinks of the bike. Oh. And he sees a lot of the things that I feel. He says, that bike doesn't seem to be working so well. You look a little ragged on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and stuff like that. So it's um, it's interesting. But I think there is definitely something to what you say that... You know, experience counts for a lot, like in any sport. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's not all just power output and things like that. There's a lot more to, to just style, you could call it, perhaps, pedaling style. Well, one of the things I found out as I've gotten older and I continue to ride is, is I'm able to continue to do things uh, that maybe I shouldn't be doing simply because I have just kind of the experience and, and I know some of those those little tricks uh, that make mm -hmm. me enable me to ride a lot more efficiently uh, than I might ride otherwise. Uh, and that, that certainly comes with time. You know, one of the things you said when we were emailing back and forth a little bit about doing this podcast, you, you mentioned that the subject of planning sometimes can be a little bit contentious. And how did you mean that yeah. exactly? Do people
people just go, uh, Jan, you're nuts, <laughs> or what? Where is that coming from? Well, that's one of the nicer <laughs> things they say. No, <laughs> what happens is, as you mentioned, people have believed for the longest of times that frame flex wastes energy. You know, it's easy to to visualize. Well, the frame flexes, so instead of the rear wheel turning, it just you know is gone that energy, and. Um, so when you come then and say, well, first of all, the energy isn't gone because it gets returned to the drivetrain. And secondly, most of you have been riding flexible bikes anyhow. Then not everybody is ready for that. We once, when we were riding with Jeff Lyon, the guy who built our three test bikes, uh, he was coming into town. And we met a guy who was on a brand new bike of his. And he said, oh, this bike is so great. It performs so well. You won't believe it. It's brand new. It's red. And it's so <laughs> stiff, you wouldn't believe it. Okay, the guy goes on his way, and I asked Jeff, Jeff, what did you use for tubing for his bike? He says, I used 747 oversize. Uh. This is about the lightest, most flexible oversized tubing you can find. By today's standards, that bike was a noodle. <laughs> and we both had a good laugh, because this guy said, oh, it performs so well, it's so stiff. So if you now go to that guy and say, hey, you know, your bike actually is flexible. <laughs> He'd be so disappointed. <laughs> Just like I was when I found out that my high-end bike, when I carried my wife on the back, was flexing like crazy. And I said, but that can't be. It's my high-end bike. It's stiff. It's great. I win races on it, you know? It was it was sort of a big letdown. I thought, you know, did I get cheated? Yeah. Did they use the wrong tubing? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's funny. That's funny. And you know, the builders have sort of developed a crutch to bridge that um, that problem and that is there was long time the myth that high and high strength tubing was stiffer than low strength tubing so yes you have a lot more material on your drain pipe bike but that material is just sort of like butter or like the wet noodle whereas this high strength steel is so much stiffer that even though we have a lot less of it a lot lighter bike it's actually stiffer um, but unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, physics tell us that that's not the case. All steels have the same modulus of elasticity. So, and when you measure deflection, you find that very quickly. But that allowed people to say, well, you know, this new whatever steel is so much stiffer, and that's why it performs better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When, in fact, I think the new steel performed better because there was less of it and the bike was more flexible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just like this rider who we met on the ride with Jeff Lyon, who probably was riding something else before that was way stiffer, before he got his... Or maybe he just had a really stiff bike. handlebar on that bike. <laughs> you know, I don't think that really matters much. I mean, when we, you know, when we did our testing, we had exactly the same handlebars, exactly uh. the same wheels, everything. So, yeah, but so it can be a little contentious like any new idea. Let me ask you one other question. The way oh, but I want to mention one thing when I say new idea. I'm not ah, claiming yes. that we came up with this concept, that we invented it, that we are the first ones, because really it's been known for a long time. Some frames feel lively, some feel dead. The French call them nervous. But yeah. all those terms sort of didn't really express what we wanted to express, which is why we use the term planing. Because nervous, I think of a bike that handles poorly. Yes, exactly. Squirrely. So if I say, oh, I love this bike, it's so nervous. Uh, <laughs> You're not going to sell very many. What we want. <laughs> yeah, but the French call it nervosité, which means basically like a racehorse that's nervous, you know, that mm -hmm. wants to run. 
Uh, that's nice. That's nice. One of the uh, is it analytic cycling that has the uh, the flame flex flex experiment on it? Is that the site? Uh, no, it was bike think. Yeah, bike think. It's you know, it's, and you've yeah, described it in your magazine too, where where you can actually mm-hmm. do a little test on the bike and see the flame the frame return uh, energy back mm-hmm. into the. I wonder, has anybody? I mean. How much energy comes back? I mean, I know. Uh, is it really enough well, power? Well, the only thing that back? doesn't come back heats yeah. up your frame. Right, right. Your frame doesn't get very hot. Right. But, you know, realistically, when we did the experiment with a power meter, we found that speed and power output between our normal and our super flexible bike were exactly the same, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, the, the losses to frame flex must be very small because one bike is about 50% more flexible yep. and yet is just as efficient. Right, right. So it's, it's teeny tiny. What If you lose anything due to the, the, you know, the material heating up. What I'm thinking is about, is about the power that's being returned to you more than that little bit of power that's being lost, which I think is only one hundredth mm-hmm. of one percent or something, which is really tiny. And I, I'm just I'm wondering, if you've got a rider on a bike that's returning some of that energy back to you, if you don't have a really good pedal stroke to begin with, you may not benefit as much from from that coming Or maybe back. the opposite. <coughs> yeah. If you have a really yeah. chomping pedal stroke, yeah. then you might have that effect even more. And, um, you know, one thing that's interesting, and I haven't been able to find that study, but I've heard about it multiple times, is where they analyze the pedal strokes of amateur racers and professionals, and mm-hmm. professionals were a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. But three-quarters of the pedal stroke was exactly the same. Both the amateurs and the professionals pulled back, pulled up, and pushed forward right. just as much. But the big difference in the power output was that the pros mashed down a lot harder. Oh, really? Yeah. So the pros had a much less round pedal stroke just because they, yeah. you know, pushed down Yeah. really, really hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. And so, you know... Um, I don't know, you know, do you really need a super smooth, super round pedal stroke? There are many reasons why you should have it. But you could you almost argue that somebody who doesn't have a very round pedal stroke might be more, might benefit more from it. Might benefit training. more. Well, if we can find something that all riders can benefit from, regardless of their pedal stroke, that's fantastic. You know, here's the thing. <laughs> when you look at your new um, prototype frame there that you made, the, yeah. the, the one that you just wrote, yeah. are there any disadvantages to the more flexible frame? Oh, none that I found. Absolutely none. No. So, so basically, far. I mean, I'm sure if you put huge panniers on the back, you will find some disadvantages. Right, right. Or something. But for normal riding... Why not just go a little lighter, a little more flexible for everybody? Yeah, exactly. You know, they get a lighter bike, they get one that's a little more flexible. Well, especially... Sure it might dent a little more easily, but, you know, I'm willing to take a few dents if I'm having a smile on my face. Exactly, and if it's steel, it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> but, you know, there are benefits to that, because in my market, where we're selling a lot of bikes to smaller women, the weight issue always comes bubbling up to the surface. I only weigh 100 or 120. Why should my bike weigh X percent of my yeah. body weight when it's only X minus Y percent of my boyfriend's body weight? So yeah. you can kill two birds with one stone which is always good with that yeah well i think the, you know, whole the other thing that one might experiment with when we did that um the test of the bike with a little bit of suspension 
The nice thing of that was that it was adjustable. Ah, yes. Yeah. You know, so you could incorporate something like that in your bikes and um, offer different elastomers and say, try it out, not for comfort, but just how it feels, how you feel on the hills and so on. Right, exactly. I think that would be fascinating to do. Um, and, you know, it looks a lot with that elastomer if you use the traditional steel frames. But um, I think there's some potential there. And the other thing is once you can correlate those elastomers to tube sets, you could say, okay, how about I send you out with this bike for a day or two, and you report back which elastomer you like best, and then we make a custom frame accordingly. Oh, now see, that's neat. That would be fantastic. That's a great idea. I like that. I'll write that one down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make Richard Schwinn crazy before this is over. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, this has been a great conversation. I think it certainly provide a lot of food for thought. And I would love to talk to you some more in the future as you continue investigating all of these really great ideas that uh, can only make us better cyclists. And that's what it's all about. You know, a lot of this has been known. I mean, in the past, the drain pipe frames were available and nobody raced them, even on flat stages. So even though people thought their bikes were more flexible, they gravitated toward the ones that worked best for them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't want to take too much credit here. It's Perhaps the, the only credit I can take is trying to synthesize these almost mythical ideas that we have, you know, of this frame builder making a bike that's better than that frame builder and this tubing riding different from that and so on, and trying to figure out what holds up to to closer scrutiny. But it's not like we really came up with anything new. I mean, that's why I never thought about the thing, because I was the traditional European racer as far as pedaling style went, and I rode traditional European racing bikes, and I rode happily. Mm -hmm. You know, there was I was I was in sync with those bikes. There was no problem until I rode something that was not so much designed for me. Well, I think the fact that you've actually tried to analyze it a little bit more in terms of doing the double-blind test and looking at power output and those kinds of things is really taking the idea and giving it a new coat of varnish in a way to try and find out what was really going on under the hood, so to speak. So that's that's really exciting. Well, thanks. Yeah, it is really exciting because, well, first of all, my new bike will have a different tube set. <laughs> because I figured out that in the end, I'm not quite the European racer. I'm not that strong. I'm not that powerful. And uh, I do better on a slightly more flexible bike. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's the great thing and, about uh, being in this business. There's always that next bike that incorporates just one more idea that we've we've uncovered or are working on. <laughs> Life is never dull. You know, to some degree, yes, but... But I spent a lot of effort on my latest bike because I think we've tried so much different stuff now that it's really hard to envision. You know, I can't go more flexible because that tubing just doesn't exist unless I go undersized. And, um, you know, geometries, we've developed a lot of stuff. Tires, we've thought about a lot. I'm pretty confident that we're at a point now where, you know, at least as far as classic bikes go, um, where we're at the point where I don't expect any radical innovations anymore, mm -hmm. or not innovations, mm -hmm. even any radical changes in what we prefer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Neat. Well, there's always yeah. something else, and that's 
But it's just great uncovering all the stuff and kind of bringing it to light again and and looking at the reasons why people did what they did. And it's funny yeah, but how... You know, the main thing is, what my goal always is, is a bike that I don't think about much when I'm on the bike. I mean, uh, absolutely. As the editor of Bicycle Quarterly, I think yeah. a lot about bikes. But when I'm out there in the mountains riding... I don't think, you know, does this bike have the right trail figure? Does this bike have the perfect tire size? I'm not even thinking about the corners much. I'm mm-hmm. just going with the flow. Mm-hmm. Well, if all and that's happening, then that bike has everything just right. <laughs> exactly. That's sort of, you know, and even if it's not quite right, I still enjoy it. You know, it's not like I'm riding along the whole time thinking, oh, I just wish I had, you know, my new bike or something. <laughs> because otherwise you just make yourself miserable, you yeah, know. Yeah. I mean, some things are hard to ignore. I must admit that if there's a clicking now noise coming from my bike, I, it, it, it ruins my ride somewhat. <laughs> but, you know, but beyond that, as long as the bike's functioning properly, I'm usually pretty happy just, just out there riding. Which is what it's all about, just having a great bike. Yeah. That's the name of the game. Wow. Well, Jan, thank you very much. As usual, it was great talking to you. Well, nice talking to you, too, and I'm really excited about your new bike because if our research helps you to enjoy your bike more, that's exactly what we are. And if I can pass that along to some of our customers, even better. <laughs> exactly. No, that's why I'm so excited that you are responsible receptive to this stuff because I think especially your customers might be a prime audience. Definitely, definitely. I'm looking forward to selling many of them, I hope. (laughs) 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 All right, Jan. Well, we shall speak again for sure, and I look forward to the next issue of Bicycle Quarterly. (laughs) Thank you. All right, well, take care. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye.